what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. You're listening to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? And now here's your host, Neil White. Welcome to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? I'm your host, Neil White, joined as always by my brother, David, as we get set for episode 60, David. Wow. Seems like a lot of episodes. Episode 50, our big special, was 10 episodes again, so you can go back and listen to that one if you want. The Lessons of History, we went over the first 50 podcasts. We've done 10 more since then, so if you haven't listened to all of them, now's your chance. And we're going to do one more right now, the 10th one. David, are you ready to go? I'm ready when you are, Neil. Then I'll ask the question, oh brother, when art thou? Neil, it's 91 BC, and Marcus Lucius Drusus, Tribune of Rome, is woken by a knocking at the door to his home. He opens the door and greets the stranger on the street. Suddenly, the stranger pulls a dagger from his robes, stabs Marcus to death and flees. There's another six decades to go before the fall of the Roman Republic, but yet another critical step on that path has just been taken. Murder right off the start, David. This is a good start indeed. So tell us a little bit more about Marcus Lucius Drusus. Who is this? So Drusus is a tribune of Rome which is one of the two most powerful men in the Republic in normal, normal times. Is 91 BC, David, normal times? Relatively, yes. There's no war on, there's no major disturbances. And so Drusus is a powerful man. He's reached the pinnacle of Roman politics. And he's done it throughout with a relatively conservative image. He's supported relatively noble factions and generally been a moderate to conservative politician as far as Roman politicians go. But this year, in 91 BC, something big has changed. What's changed is that Marcus Lucius Drusus, one of the more boring Roman politicians of the era, has announced that he has recognized that the system needs change, that there are genuine problems with the way that things are being handled, and it's time to change the way that juries are composed for major political trials in the Roman Republic which sounds like a boring detail kind of thing. But because previously juries were required to be composed for major trials only of members of the equites class, the most noble class in Rome, they've become a forum for a certain, almost a veto point in the politics of the Roman Republic they prevent some, well, some laws from being passed by ruling them illegal in the courts when that's not necessarily a decision based solely on the law. So Drusus wants to change that. And of course, not everyone wants change, which means 
that he's needed to promise more reforms, popular reforms, to ensure that his technical reform that he cares about will pass too. So David, this reform would give the lower classes some representation on these juries, which would mean the juries couldn't just block laws that the upper class didn't like. Am I following that? Exactly. Now, we shouldn't overstate this. He's only suggesting that the jury should be composed of members of the senatorial and equites classes, so still a relatively narrow upper-class group of people, but broader than it has ever been before. That's the key element of the reform that he's proposing for the courts. So that could change things and make the courts more democratic in a way or more representative, at least of another class beyond the top class. What other reforms is he going to put into this package, David, to ensure that it gets through? So there's a few classic populist reforms in the Roman tradition. He promises to mint more coins, which will cause a little bit of inflation, which is generally good for the people who owe debt and bad for the people who hold debt. He's also proposing to lower the price of grain, which is sold through a state monopoly. Obviously, that's always popular. But the big one, the very biggest of the populist reforms that he is proposing, is to allow Roman citizenship to be expanded from only men living in the city of Rome to men living in the other allied cities in Italy that are also part of the Roman Republic, but which traditionally have been shut out of political representation. So, along with these monetary reforms, the jury reform, he is proposing broader citizenship. I'm guessing, David, that this would be popular with those people in those other cities, but not quite as popular in Rome with the people who already have citizenship through the more traditional way. How can he get this passed, David? How, how does it work with trying to give citizenship to people who don't have it yet? Well, in some ways, it is popular with some Roman citizens, not all of them. But some Roman citizens, especially the ones with more connections with the outlying towns, remember, these are other towns in Italy. He's not proposing across the entirety of the Roman Republic, across the entire territories that they hold, just towns that are very similar uh, socially, culturally, very similar to Rome, and which have a lot of commercial ties to Rome. So... In that sense, there is a con constituency for this in Rome, but at the same time, there's a countervailing constituency that hates it. The idea that the franchise, which comes, of course, with citizenship, would be given out to people out on the periphery is widely viewed as weakening the value of Roman citizenship for current Roman citizens. So who are these two groups, David? Who's for it? Who's against it? Set the picture for us. Well, in some ways, it's hard to be too generalizing and definitive because the groups are intermixed in ways that don't fall along the traditional fault line in Roman politics. Traditionally, Roman politics is all about the populares, the ordinary class, against the upper classes. 
but in this case, some of the populares love the idea of expanding the franchise because they view citizens of other cities in Italy as being like them, oppressed by the optimates, the upper classes. Others amongst the populares hate the idea because they view it as taking away one of the few valuable elements of Roman citizenship that even they get to take part in, which is the power of the franchise and the power of control of the Roman government. And obviously, if you bring in more people, then the value of each individual vote will go down. But then amongst the optimates, amongst the upper classes, there's another split. Some of them love it because they're in business with people in these other towns and they can see that their business partners are resentful that they don't have the franchise, that this is creating social tensions, this is creating the possibility of revolution amongst all these towns, and they view it as a good, helpful step, whereas other optimates view it as just another bone to toss to the rabble, just another way to get more people who don't understand what it means to be a upper-class Roman citizen and give them the franchise and let them run the empire into the ground. So this is a political issue that divides the city in ways that are very different from the traditional political divides that the city is used to dealing with. So Rome is split, David. How does Drusus go about trying to get his reforms passed? What happens for him? Well, Drusus, initially at least, has a fairly strong position because he is a politician. He's worked his way up to be in Tribune, so he's at the top of his career. But as it becomes clear that it's unlikely that his full package of reforms is going to pass all at once through the Senate, Drusus decides to focus on passing his reform which will bring the other Italian cities and grant them full citizenship because he thinks that if he can get that one through, then he will have the political power from his support amongst the other Italian cities, the new citizens, to bring all of his other reforms through with no problem. Kind of a classic political move, David. If you don't have the votes, expand the base to people who will vote for you. It's been done many times throughout history. Is he going to be able to get this law through? What's the process? So the key point that Drusus is facing is the vote in the Senate. Obviously, the full process for confirming a uh, law in Rome, in the Roman Republic, is quite complex. There's multiple points. There's the vetoes of the tribunes, which Drusus doesn't really have to worry about because he is the tribunes. There's the courts. But the key thing from Drusus's perspective is to get this through the Senate. And so he's spending the year 91 BC working every angle, just trying to get all of the senators lined up 
just like modern politics, really. The senators, the representatives are the people he needs to convince to vote, and he needs to get his majority, and he's working on it, trying to get it lined up. He's reportedly close several times, but it never quite comes to the floor in a vote because he's always waiting for one more senator to switch. And then, well, then he gets stabbed in his house, and suddenly the the whole thing is dead. So the whole thing is dead, and so is Drusius. Is there like a police force in Rome? How does this work? Did somebody investigate what happened to him? Well, it is investigated in the Roman fashion, which is not a conventional police force as we would understand it today. But obviously, he's a senior political figure, and he's got a ton of political allies, and they go and investigate, and they find nothing. The reports are no one saw the guy go up to the house. No one knows what happened on the doorstep. There's just the reports from the people who lived with Marcus that there was a knock on the door, he went to answer it, and the next thing anybody knew, he'd been stabbed to death and there was a guy running away. So the killer was never caught. A well-planned political assassination, David. Is there any clues in history as to who may have pulled this off? So historians love to debate this, of course. And in general, the debate focuses not on the details of who the killer was, but of the motive of, was this driven by somebody who wanted to stop the expansion of the franchise to the other Italian cities? Was it somebody who wanted to retain the upper-class monopoly on the courts and on jury composition? Or was it somebody else who had a personal grudge against Marcus? He was a senior Roman politician, and he'd certainly made enemies along the way as he made his way up the ranks of Roman politics. So ultimately, there's no satisfying answer. There's no there's many theories, many plausible theories, but there's no real reason to believe that we in 2021 know who it was who killed Marcus Lucius Drusus. Well, David, it sounds like an opportunity for a true crime podcast. We'll have to do that next and try and solve this murder. David, is this the end of the reforms? Is that all it took? One stabbing to end Drusus's goals of bringing about jury reforms, monetary reforms, and this major citizenship reform? Well, in one way, yes. But in another way, no. Because this has an effect bigger than anyone had expected. And frankly, when the first news of the stabbing got out, people were expecting major effects. But the major effects that occur aren't in Rome and Roman politics. The major effects occur in the other Italian cities who had heard about Drusus's plan, of course, had worked with him, and who had believed that they were about to get citizenship. And when it became clear that Drusus had been stabbed to death and that the impetus for granting them citizenship had died with them, 
several of these cities rise up in revolt. And so, Rome is suddenly no longer concerned with the details of the composition of the courts or the coinage of money. Rome is concerned with revolution. There's a revolution in Rome. The outlying cities are rising up now. They want that citizenship that Drusius had planned to get to them. What is the outlook now, David, in the Roman Republic? So the Roman Republic is afraid. These troops that are being raised by the rebel cities are troops who have fought, in many cases, previously in the Roman legions as they fight against the various tribes that they fought against. There's, they've already conquered Spain. They fought the Punic Wars. There's, these are combat-experienced troops who know the Roman way of fighting. And that, of course, is very concerning to the generals who are being quickly raised to march out and take the fight to the enemy. So the Roman Republic's leaders decide on a strategy where one portion of their army will be sent to simply defend Rome for the first year of the war, not on the offensive, just defending the city. And the rest of their army will be split up and the officers sent out to the provinces and to the cities which have not yet joined the revolt to try and convince the various portions of the Roman Republic which have not joined with the revolting cities to raise troops and then to sort of surround the revolting cities and eliminate them one by one. A dangerous situation for Rome, David, their own cities in revolt. That is bad news when you're the ones who trained those guys how to fight. Do the rebels have a chance here, David? Are they, what do they have going for them? So what the rebels have going for them are trained troops who know how to fight like the Romans fight, since the Roman army is probably the best in the world man for man at this point, just in terms of their tactical capabilities. And the potential for expansion at the very start of the war, if all of the cities of Italy that aren't Rome had been willing to rise up, Rome probably would have lost. But many cities are not ready to join in this revolt. So there's quite a few powerful Italian cities that are waiting, basically, not declaring for Rome, not declaring themselves in rebellion, just quietly trying to determine which side they want to be on. So, David, what's the pitch? Who's going to persuade these cities to join their side? Well, the Senate orders Gaius Marius, who is a senior experienced general and politician who's already got a lot of supporters in the city, and he's ordered to defend Rome and also to make the pitch, especially to the Italian cities that have not yet joined the rebellion, 
to try and get them on side. But Gaius Marius knows that this is going to be super unpopular no matter what he does. Any promise that will get the Italian cities to join with Rome will be too much for some of the population to support. So he picks one of his friends and, you know, sort of lower-ranking politician military friends to go out there and make the actual offer. This is a guy by the name of Lucius Julius Caesar. Not to be confused with Julius Gaius Caesar, his son, who he named, whose middle name was named after Gaius Marius. Ah, so his son will become the very famous Julius Caesar that we all know from history textbooks. Exactly. So Lucius offers what becomes known as the Lex Julia, a law passed through the Roman Senate in an emergency procedure, which offers cities that ally with Rome against the rebels the right to extend citizenship to their leading men on a phased-in basis. So some of the cities that Drusus had planned to give citizenship will be getting it. But of course, the rebels get nothing. Wow, David, what a political power move. This is what the rebels wanted was that citizenship. So what do they do? Extend it to the cities that are willing to put down the rebels. How does it end up tallying out, David? Are the rebels powerful enough or do enough cities accept Rome's offer and join them against the rebels? So a lot of the most powerful cities in Italy accept Rome's offer to join up against the rebels in return for citizenship. So in that sense, it's a critical win for Rome. Many of them actually drag their feet on really sending troops to the front line, although not all of them. Some of them are quite quick about it, but many of them are actually dragging their feet. But ultimately, that doesn't matter. By simply ensuring that Rome is safe, that the most powerful, closest cities to it are going to stand with the Romans, they've made sure that there will be enough time for their army out in the colonies to raise a force and march down from the north and trap the rebel cities that are in rebellion and not willing to stop now between the forces of Rome and this new colonial army. And once that's done, it will take a few years to finally end the war. But that is the essential strategy that will end this war that historians refer to as the social war. So, David, the social war will be a victory for Rome. The rebels are trapped between the colonial forces and the Roman forces, done in by the delay and the inability to get those other Roman cities on their side. Is there anything else we should note, David, about the social war and how it ends? There is one important fact for the future of Rome and how it will ultimately cease to be a republic. Gaius Marius commands the Roman forces in Rome itself, but the new colonial army that was raised to 
march down and bring down the rebellious cities, was placed under the command of one of his rivals, a man by the name of Sulla. That was a deliberate choice by the Senate to ensure that Gaius Marius wouldn't get too much power as this war ends. But unfortunately, it will have negative consequences. Once Sulla and Marius are both back in Rome and victorious after defeating the rebellion, they fall to fighting amongst themselves. There's a series of civil wars between Sulla and Marius, and that series of civil wars will see Gaius Julius Caesar spirited out of the city and raised to believe that the chaos of the Republic needs to be ended by somebody with a strong hand. So major implications, David, for a future Roman leader, Julius Caesar. And somewhat ironic, David, that in putting down one rebellion, the Romans managed to foment some other civil wars. Isn't that how it goes in Rome? It is sometimes the way that one civil war leads to another. Well, thanks for telling us this story, David. Murder, rebellion, and politics, what more could you ask for? Thanks. I always enjoy sharing these, Neil. And if you enjoy listening to them, do check us out on social media at When Art Thou on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can find all our old episodes. Go back. We got a few others there about ancient Rome, so go check them out. And make sure you give us a like, give us a follow, and please leave a review in your favorite podcast player if it allows reviews. David, we always like to end with something fun, so I do have a quiz for you today. Are you ready? I am ready for a quiz, Neil. What have you got? We're going to jump ahead a bit, David, to World War II, and I have some actual headlines from the New York Times from World War II. Your job is going to be to fill in the blanks of these New York Times headlines. So our first headline is from May 14th, 1940. The New York Times headline says, Blank meet Nazis in clash of 1,500 tanks. Sorry, what was the year? This was May 14th, 1940. 1940, then it must be the French meeting the Nazis. You are correct, David. That was the Times headline, French meet Nazis in clash of 1,500 tanks. The Times noted that the clash was epic, surpassing anything the human brain had ever conceived. Our next headline comes a little under a month later, June 11th, 1940, David. And the headline was, Blank at war, ready to attack. Stab in back, says Roosevelt. June of 1940, somebody is entering the war. I'd have to imagine that this is Italy. You are right, David. Italy was the country that joined the war, which Roosevelt considered a stab in the back. Moving ahead to June 12th, 1942. This headline read, Soviet and blank signed war and peace pact. Who signed the war and peace pact with the Soviets? Huh, that's a tricky one. I'm actually not sure who it would be signing a war and peace pact with the Soviets in 1942. Seems a little late, given that the Soviet Union had already been at war for years by then. Perhaps it was Japan? 
This was actually Britain, David. This is the treaty that brought Russia and Great Britain into a close alliance in the war against Nazi Germany. And our next headline comes from October 27th, 1942. Blank rationing on cup a day basis ordered on November 29th. Rationing? And it's on a cup a day basis, so it needs to be something that's usually measured in cups as opposed to, say, fuel. So I'll guess sugar. Sugar is usually measured in cups. Well, perhaps sugar would be tied to this. It was actually coffee that they were rationing. So you could have one cup of coffee per day once this came into effect. Our last headline from the New York Times, David, from May 3rd, 1945. Blank falls to Russians. 70,000 give up. Well, I would have to imagine that that would be Berlin. You are right, David. Berlin fell to the Russians the day before, and that was the New York Times headline, May 3rd. Berlin falls to Russians. 70,000 give up. David, thanks for playing along. I always enjoy it, Neil. And thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.